By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. There are popular songs and there are great songs, and they are not always the same thing. How can you tell the difference? Time can help you tell. The songwriter and composer Jimmy Webb has Grammys and platinum albums and Hall of Fame plaques, but it's the fact that people are still singing and still listening to the songs he started writing 50 years ago that's a defining difference. Wichita Lineman, Didn't We, Up, Up and Away, soundtracks, musicals, hundreds of songs, and of course, MacArthur Park. He moved to Southern California as a teenager to within the glamorous radius of the center of 1960s popular music. In an age of furious electric guitar riffs, Webb's rich, nuanced melodies and mouth-watering orchestrations attracted some of the greatest voices in modern song. In his new memoir, The Cake and the Rain, Webb writes about that era and himself, and here he considers the past and the future and the nature of popular music. Keep on ringing off the wall. You speak so much in the book about the importance of storytelling in songwriting, everything from medieval ballads to Tin Pan Alley. Why is storytelling such an important aspect to good, to memorable songwriting? You know, they say that the um, minstrels or the troubadours of Aquitaine were like the first real songwriters because they wrote songs about love, not just about the news of the day. Some historians claim that they were the forerunners of modern songwriters. And I think that there's a clue there. I, I think that noblemen sort of used to send go-betweens to their beloved counterparts. And I think that in a way... Modern songwriting is an extenuation of that because songwriters in such an urgent and undeniable way uh, express emotions for people who, in large part, seem unable to do that for themselves. What were you listening to? What were your musical influences? It was rather a hodgepodge of influences because my father listened to a lot of southern white gospel music, the, uh, the Statesman, the Oak Ridge Boys, Jake Hess and the Imperials. These were the big names in the gospel quartet world. He was a Marine. He served in the South Pacific for 37 months, and he came back with a battered silvertone guitar, which he could play very well. And he sang a lot of war ballads, I would call them like Harbor Lights, I'll Be Seeing You, Beautiful Things, Red Sails in the Sunset. It was not a carefully designed stew, but it was it was enough of a variation that I grew up liking all kinds of music. And in those days before iPods, if your father listened to it, everybody listened to it. There was the radio. Yes, because we would get our hands slapped if we tried to change the radio to a rock and roll station. At the time, I remember we used to make such fun of him when his back was turned. But in, I actually grew, I lived long enough to find out that he was basically right. At one point, Rolling Stone congratulated you for recovering your identity from, quote, the housewives of America to the forefront <laughs> of contemporary composers. What did that mean? I had sort of gotten tagged as a, as a middle-of-the-road songwriter because of the people I wrote 
before. So that was a misnomer, but a misnomer and a, and a, a notion that's very hard to correct once it gets going. Didn't we almost make it this time? But I had great vocalists, Mr. Sinatra, I had Glenn Campbell, I had The Fifth Dimension, Tony Bennett, Barbara Streisand recorded one of my songs. So all these were great singers, and whatever their politics may have been, their music was firmly in the middle of the road. So that's what I was known for. And I, I can remember this one article that really incensed me. I got to London, and uh, one of the music magazines there had written, uh, oh, well, Jimmy Webb is back in town with his orchestra or whatever. Mm. <laughs> that really ticked me off. I was about 20 years old, and I went, why do they write these things? I don't have an orchestra. I'm not Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians, you know. I, but I used a lot of instrumentation on my records. At one point, Elvis Presley buttonholed you in a bar to find out how many French horns you used. <laughs> it was such a bizarre thing. Uh, even to hear you say that makes me laugh, because I can, I'll never forget his voice. Jimma? How many French horns do you use, you know? And uh, I told him four because that was how many I used. And I also knew that that was pretty much the industry standard for a large group of players. What was it like to be in the recording industry at a time when it ruled the roost? Asylum Records, all these incredibly powerful and influential labels. Well, I think that to some degree we took it for granted that that's the way it was always going to be. People would speak rather speciously about new technologies and about one of these days everything will be on a quarter. It'll be the size of a quarter. And you'll carry albums around in your pocket. And I can remember these stories going around and people sort of laughing and saying, yeah, but that'll be a long, long time. Well, we had no idea how quickly that silvered age of actually making and selling phonograph records was really only going to last another decade or at most a decade and three years or four years and then it was going to start coming apart in a big way but at the time we still had records we loved records we loved the way they smelled we loved the way they looked we loved the way they sounded and speaking for myself all i cared about was making another one. If I could make a record that was successful enough that the company would give me the money to make another record, that's all I wanted. I think that in a certain sense, the, the entire industry was wearing blinders through the 70s and most of the 80s because when the peer-to-peer -peer networks came down and when very, very thorny legal issues like what does a download constitute a performance when those questions began to come down it was already too late and it had supplanted all the technology of the record business was obsolete and we were very quickly run down by large companies who had prepared themselves for this the record company was the canary in the coal mine 
and a lot of industries like the film industry and uh, copyright-based industries had the luxury of watching us disintegrate and taking measures to protect themselves. But we were the front line in that battle with digital media. and We lost spectacularly. What has technology like auto-tune, all of these changes, what has the impact been on songwriting and on performing when anything can be done on a computer and not in a studio, not on stage? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because I'm, I'm recently, my perspective on it changed slightly. I was talking to someone very knowledgeable, and this person said to me, you realize that the kids like the way these records sound, and it just stopped me cold because there's nothing I dislike any more than that kind of vocorder, absolutely no sharp or flat notes, no real instruments, everything metronomically controlled by a kind of robotic consciousness. The whole thing sounds like it could be made on a machine somewhere, and, and indeed it is made on a machine. And it's devoid of any of the things we used to cherish. Like, we loved drummers who had great feel. We liked mistakes. Sometimes the best thing about a record was some divine mistake, I used to call them, that, that you would end up building the whole record around. Because things would just occur. Today's musicians, songwriters, they don't perhaps have to know composition. They don't have to know the elements of an orchestra. They've got it all on a computer. Yes. And I think it was Roger Miller who once said, there's no intrinsic virtue in ignorance. I always believed that how you got to be great was by emulating the great players the traditions of mentorship, of passing down guitar licks. Larry Nechtel, who was one of the wrecking crew who played piano, and actually you can hear him to great effect on Bridge Over Troubled Waters. I used to sit by his side because I was the junior partner. He would show me stuff, and he'd say, now, when you're in the studio, you know, you're going to have to just keep your mind open and react very quickly whenever the arrangement changes. And he mentored me, and that was the road to greatness, is you rubbed up against the people who were great, and you gave them credit when it came time. And I hasten to add, that I don't think that our generation was the greatest mentoring generation. When it came right down to it, we don't seem to have been very successful in passing the baton. And then overlaying it all is just this gigantic, comprehensive like revision of the way everything is done. The technique has changed the music so much. And I don't even know how they make records. I have an idea how they make records. But... I'm not even sure I want to know how they make records. I'm planning another record, a singer-songwriter record, and I don't want a drum machine within 10 miles of my studio. I don't want anything that's perfect on my record because I think that perfect sounds prefabricated. Can you say what will be on this one? 
usually I don't talk about my songs, but I have a song about a vet who's in a wheelchair and he's he's in a VA hospital. And the rest are, a lot of them are road songs because I spend a lot of time on the road now. I talked to a guy just on my last tour and he was a Vietnam vet and he said that the way he got through the war was he sang all of my songs when he was on guard duty. And when he would get to the end of my songs, he'd just start the list, go back through the list again and he says he got through the war like that. Just to know that in some way or another that I helped him get through that experience meant so much to me. And so, in a way, the album is going to be real stories about the road. It's going to be about legends of the road. It's going to be about the ending of the road because all this, in some strange way, however unlikely, it seems to be winding down to some kind of an end to this era of music. You write about the greats, and some of the greats had feet of clay. You had encounters with all of the Beatles, but I think it was singer Harry Nilsson who asked you to commit perjury for John Lennon? He was in the shadow of the U.S. government. They were pretty serious about getting him out of the country. I believe that would be Richard Nixon, specifically. Of course, he didn't want to leave America. Therefore, he should have been on his best behavior because they were waiting for him to screw up so they could throw him out. And he got in a jam with my pal, Harry Nielsen, one memorable night in Hollywood at the Troubadour. And he was alleged to have attacked a photographer and have broken her camera and to have struck her. I don't have a clue what happened because I wasn't there. But I ended up giving a deposition to the effect that I was there and that I could assure the court that Mr. Lennon did not strike anyone or break anyone's camera or anything like that. I mean, it's outrageous what I was doing. Because I think there's a 50-50 chance here that he probably did it. In fact, I heard him say some things that made me think that maybe he had done it. And so, naturally, the question that follows is, why would you put yourself in jeopardy like that? And the answer is because it was the Beatles. And because when the Beatles asked you to do something, and the Beatles needed something, if the Beatles were in peril, horrors, you rushed to their aid because they were the Beatles. It was the code. It also seems of a piece with what you wrote about cocaine changing the music industry. What I tried to capture in the writing was the rapidity, how one day the world was a sort of coke-free and people were smoking a little dope and, and drinking a little bit. And the next day, everybody had a bottle of cocaine in their pocket. It had become legal tender. You could get studio musicians with it. You could get a date the evening. Cocaine was in the executive suites of all the major record companies. It became cool. There was no social stigma attached to it. Au contraire, most people didn't set off for an evening's dinner engagement and party after or without your stash. What did it do to the music? Honestly, I don't think it helped it any. I don't think that alcohol had the same power to disrupt. I mean, alcohol and music have a kind of symbiotic relationship. A lot of great records were made with the principles, you know, half in the bag. And if it was a sad song, it would definitely work for you. I think that you you could look back and find a long, long line of hit records that were cut, probably with alcohol somewhere in the vicinity. But cocaine was a... It fit hand in glove with recording.
sessions were long and sometimes they were tedious. And, you know, when you just didn't feel like doing it anymore, go in and lay out a few lines on top of the console and roll up those $100 bills and everybody would have a snort. And all of a sudden, the energy would be back. You would get to a point uh, on, on, on that drug where you should be home in bed asleep, but you're not. You're still standing up. You're still walking around making decisions. A lot of decisions were bad decisions. The title of your book is The Cake and the Rain. And this, uh-huh. of course, is a reference to MacArthur Park, which is probably the most scrutinized song since Hey Jude. And you said it's obscure enough to confound even the most inquiring intelligence. Unpack MacArthur Park for us. I'm sitting just a couple of miles from MacArthur Park, by the way. I think you know that I'm never going to do that. <laughs> In the book, I took a swing at literally explaining what happened there. And the fact is that it is a lyric of its time, which is to say that it doesn't necessarily have to make any sense. It made sense to me because those images, I know what they are. I know I know what the striped pair of pants are. I know what the, the old men playing checkers by the tree. They're all real to me. I mean, I had the striped pair of pants. There were picnics in the park. There was cake. It did rain. They're all images that I took out of context, really, and recombined them in this song. And people say, what kind of a drug were you on? I really wasn't on any kind of a drug. But it does sound like one of the hallucinogenic songs that were being written at the time. It kind of harkens back to some of the surrealism on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was a fashionable thing to do for a while to infuse a song and a lyric, particularly with with a certain ambiguity. That was part of what was going on with songs like A Whiter Shade of Pale. We skip the light, Fandango. Turns cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling and it's endured maybe in part because of the perplexity that people encounter in it. People love it. Some people made fun of it. But boy, do they know it. Yeah, it's curious. I don't know how to account for its longevity unless what you say is true and that the controversy, if you will, has been good for the song. You know that when uh, David Letterman went off the air, that one of the things that he wanted to do was a full orchestral version of MacArthur Park. And we ended up doing it. Spring was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead. And at the end of it, Will Lee, only the great Will Lee, climbed a ladder behind a cake. But while he was climbing a ladder, he was singing, oh no, oh no, oh no, and playing the bass. <laughs> and playing the bass. Uh, and I thought, oh, he's going to die. He's going to die at the end of MacArthur Park. It'll, be a, it'll add to the legend. They wanted to use it in airplane, too, and it, it drives a bunch of people out of an elevator, and I signed off on that. I also signed off on Weird Al Yankovic, Don Novello's version is Father Guido Sarducci. And yet Donna Summer made it number one. I recall the yellow cotton dress 
number one, and it was my first, and sad to say, my only number one record. And she sung the, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to resort to to obscenity here, but she sung the hell out of it. And uh, people would ask me, well, did you like Donna Silver version? Like they thought I was going to say I didn't like it. You know, I never sent a check back in my whole career. The disco thing, I, I was willing to let that go. I was just listening to her beautiful, beautiful voice and, and how passionate she was and how far into it she was. And she sold it. And I laughed when Weird Al Yankovic did uh, Jurassic Park. And at the end, uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex ate Barney, you know, which was a good moment for me. I never cared for Barney that much. I recall the time they found those fossilized mosquitoes and before long they were cloning DNA. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a cultural thing now, what can you say? And I'm sure that, that, you know, there are some people who just can't go to sleep at night because of that, but I don't know whether you, whether you, you chance to look at the list, the discography in the back of the book, of the covers of yeah. MacArthur Park. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, oh no, I mean, you can't believe it, really. You mean, oh no. I mean, oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Popular music in the 1960s especially has been a young person's game, and you've been composing ever since then, but what matters most to you now? I'm still trying to decide what's really important but i i know and i'm being very sincere with you now i'm i love my cat and i love my wife in that order and i think and, no no <laughs> <laughs> i got that wrong <laughs> i meant my wife and my cat and then it's also the ability to go in there and sit down at that grand piano in the living room and create something the way I always did. It makes me remember that that old lyric that we all used to know, you know, make your own kind of music, sing your own special song. And I think in the last line it said something about it. It doesn't matter if nobody else sings along. So I think that's where I'm at. Well, your kind of music has been our kind of music for a very long time. Well, thank you for saying that. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited by Todd G. Levin and engineered by Levin and Tim French. The music? Frank Sinatra from the Universal Music Group, Simon and Garfunkel on the CBS label, and Procol Harum on Darum Records. The CBS Orchestra played on The David Letterman Show. Donna Summer sang on Casablanca Records. And Weird Al Yankovic performed for Volcano Entertainment. Glenn Campbell performed on Capitol Records. And Richard Harris, you may know him better as Dumbledore, sang MacArthur Park on Dunhill Records. I am Pat Morrison. <laughs>